It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh with Zerlina Maxwell and joined by Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, who has a new book called Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. We have been very excited about this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Well, I am so happy to be with you here. And I completely agree. If we are someone who takes the Bible seriously, and most Christians would claim to do so, then we would be out at the front of the line demanding climate action instead of dragging our heels at the back. It's so true. I mean, yes. just can we can we talk about why, um, you know, it really truly believing in the Bible as the word of God and believing that God created all of the all of the animals and the plants and all the beautiful things that we see on this earth, that you'd want to protect that by any means necessary, not sort of be on the side of the fossil fuel company that doesn't care about those things. Well, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and that's why, so, so starting on the glass half full side, that's why there are so many Christians already on that side. So last week, the, uh, the Pope, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Patriarch of the Orthodox Church, they released a, a joint call to, um, fix climate change, basically, in a nutshell. Um, here in the U.S., there's an organization called Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. They've got over 20,000 young people around the country who are advocating for clean energy standards at their schools and in their states. We've also got the Catholic Climate Covenant here in the U.S. We've got all kinds of, you know, interfaith power and light, all kinds of faith-based organizations. And believe me, they're out there. But... When we turn into the tune into the news, what we hear is the other side. Like you said, we yeah, hear people right. claiming to be Christians, yet what they are saying, if you pick up the Bible and you look, you look at what they're saying, it's like 180 degrees apart. Yeah. What can, can I ask why, why you think that is like, oh, why, why yes. are those, why are, why is that faction of Christians uh, why do they at least appear to be so much louder than the Christian groups that are actually doing really good work to preserve our planet? I can tell you why. One word, politics. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, over time, and sadly, this actually started at the American Revolution, though it really kicked into high gear in the 80s. Over time in the United States, uh, conservative theology has becoming increasingly affiliated with conservative politics. And I'm very sad to say that in recent times during, you know, our lifetimes, I was born in the seventies, just admitting that um, <laughs> during our, during our lifetimes, it originally was kicked off by the fact that a lot of, um, a lot of Christian schools didn't want to integrate, you know, under civil rights. And then they, they sort of seized on the abortion issue as a way to sort of get people on their side politically. And then those partisan lines have just hardened over time to where now for many people in the United States who call themselves Christians, and this includes Catholics as well as Protestants, their statement of faith is written first by their political ideology and only a distant second by what the Bible says. And if the two come into conflict, they will go with their politics over the Bible. I mean, 
I guess that makes sense for the people who are like filling the pews. They get to decide which part of their identity is going to take the lead at any given moment. But why would somebody who's running a church choose to align their parishioners with a political ideology that goes directly against the teachings that they will presumably need to rely on from the pulpit? Well, you would think that, but um, in most Protestant churches, where does the pastor, the minister's salary come from? I don't even think about them having salaries. <laughs> yeah, well, they have to feed their families, and most of it comes from the congregation. And if the congregation doesn't show up, they don't get fed. And so there's a lot of sort of subtle peer pressure to um, to not just reinforce what the prevailing culture says, mm. but... Uh, or go along with it, not just go along with it, but also reinforce it because then often that keeps people coming back that sense of outrage and us against them. And we're going to really sock it to them this time. And, and you've seen in, in, increasingly militaristic language, even coming out of Christian churches. And I'm sure you've probably heard of it, but I'm just reading this great book called Jesus and John Wayne right now. <laughs> yes, I have heard it. Yes. I haven't read it, but um, so, so far I'm about halfway in and I'm nodding along with every chapter. So there, there is, um, there is a lot that has been sort of absorbed into the culture in the United States. It does not come from the original Bible. We're mm -hmm. viewing what we believe through such thick cultural glasses that sometimes we literally cannot even read the text. Oh. I am obsessed with this point because I, my parents, they were, they were the type of pastors who like studied the Bible. Like we actually still have books in the house that are like, mm -hmm. you know, the academic books that do the analysis on on each thing inside of the bible right so it's not we, just, mm -hmm. we don't just have bibles we have the books that um are the academic tests by people who studied the bible and then dissected it um and interpreted it and i just think that like there's so many things especially when it comes to climate because climate is the kind of issue where the impact it just it it's just on you and when you're a child for example you know, the most innocent, the thing the Bible says that we must protect, you know, over any, ev basically everything. Um, those are the, those are the types of people that are most impacted by an issue like climate. And for me, I feel like that's what we should, that uh, as somebody who, you know, I, I do believe in God. Jess and I talk about this all the time. Mm -hmm. um, she's aggressively agnostic. That's yes, she describes it. Which I, 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 I don't I don't I don't know anything and neither does anybody else. That is, that is my <laughs> so, religion. So, so, so no, it's it's actually a very reasonable position, right? It's so rational. It is. And like yes. I, I'm I'm made up of like 85 percent of that, which is like rational thought with like, you know, 20, you know, 15 percent was the math um, of like some things that have happened in my life that I prayed for or that I know my mom prayed for that have happened or like mm -hmm. I've been protected from something that I know my mom was praying for. I'm like, mm -hmm. I can't explain that. So that might be God. So that's like where the 15% is. Right. And I like have, I was raised in this. And so for me, it's like, what about the children that are impacted mm -hmm. by climate that are impacted by these disasters? Shouldn't Christians be at least out front on that? I mean, the first point was, the earth is beautiful, created by God, all the creatures and all of that. But what about the children and the well, babies that are affected by, you know, mm -hmm. hurricanes and floods and wildfires and all of these things? 
I am completely there with you. And let me actually say something just as a side note that's very interesting. I have a colleague, Elaine Eklund, and she is a sociologist. She studies people. And one day, a long time ago, she was in church. She goes to a Presbyterian church. And, you know, when you, um, you know, when you greet people and shake their hands in the course of conversation, the woman next to her said, well, you know, those scientists, they are all liberal atheists. And Elaine thought to herself, I wonder if that's true. So she has dedicated her life to studying the intersection between science and faith. And she found something that frankly blew my mind. It's probably going to blow yours too. She, when she surveyed almost 2000 scientists at top research universities across the U.S., she found that 70% of us consider ourselves to be spiritual people in that we believe that there's more to life than what science can quantify and document. And of the 30% who said they were atheists, 20% of those insisted that they were spiritual atheists. And she's like, what is a spiritual atheist? (laughs) So she had conversations with them to try to figure out what that was. Now, um, of the 70%, um, only 50% would identify with a specific label, like I am Mm -hmm. a you know, blank, but, but just to sort of show you that there are even top scientists have the sense of there's, there's some mystery. There's something more than what this we makes can perfect do. sense to me. Like it when, does. whenever, whenever I feel like, okay, that's evidence of God, it's because I'm reading something scientific. Like I remember learning in elementary school that there are these tree snakes and when they, when they are hanging upside down from tree limbs, their circulatory system, like the, their bodies will basically cut off at, in, at, in half and they will create two circulatory systems so that all the blood doesn't drain to their tails or their heads and they, and they fall off the tree limb. And I remember sitting there as like a 10 year old being like, mm, that's God. <laughs> like how, yes. how could that much randomness right. add up to this right. snake that, I mean, and I understand evolution. I know, I know how that works, but like the, the complexity of us no, exactly. and the intersection of us and animals and plant life and so like all of that, like that is the closest that I feel to accessing a belief in God is when I am thinking about the scientific world. So that actually makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, well, I, I'm completely there with you. Um, one of my favorite groups is a conservation group called Arasha, and they're a faith-based group. And the first time I went to one of their retreats, they're like, okay, now we're going to do morning devotions. So I expected somebody to open a Bible or stand up and start speaking. Instead, everybody left the room. And I'm like, where are they going? And they're like, outside. oh, outside. our devotions are to sit outside and observe nature. That's what we do. And I was like, this is genius. Yep. <laughs> so so back to the back to the other point though of why we care so the reason why I became a climate scientist and I was not planning to I was actually studying astrophysics that's what my undergrad degree is in wow I became a climate scientist when I found out that climate change is profoundly unjust it disproportionately affects children and women especially in poor countries it affects people who are already marginalized who already live below the poverty line it affects people who uh, indigenous people people who are disabled the people who are already on the edges on the fringes of society who are already struggling they are impacted the most by climate change even though they have done the least to cause it and that Mm. just the, the injustice of that just absolutely enraged my soul and as a christian i truly believe we are supposed to be caring for those people that is we are supposed to be showing love for people and how loving is it to stick our fingers in our ears and say oh no climate change isn't real i don't care that your crops just failed or your home was destroyed you know you're just playing that up that is the opposite of love so here's the connection to belief though so this is what i felt as a christian and so it was my faith that drove me to become a climate scientist but 
and I tell the story in the book. Um, a number of years later, I was um, at a scientific conference and one of my colleagues asked if we could get together to talk. And normally, you know, that happens a lot and we're talking about different science that we want to do together. But I met up with him and before I'd even sat down, he's like, I'm, I'm an atheist or I'm a humanist, but I care about climate change too. And I said, well, of course. I mean, I never thought you didn't. You're a scientist. This is what you do. And he's like, I care about it because it's not fair. It affects the poorest and most vulnerable people. And that's why I've, you know, he'd even changed his whole research program to work on climate solutions. And so that, that shows how whoever we are, and really that's what, that's what my book is about. Whoever we are, we are already the perfect person to care. And if we don't think we care, we just haven't connected the dots between what we already care about what's already important to us, what we've already built our life on, our own priorities, and how climate change is literally affecting every single one of those already today. So how do you work to find like the, like those shared values, that common ground? Do you work to, to find that with people who believe that climate change is a hoax or, or people who think that it's all a liberal plot to, I don't know, they never actually complete the sentence, but mm, world, world domination is usually involved. Oh, you're right. You're right. I, yes, they're, they're, <laughs> yes. The trilateral commission and world domination. Like, do, do you work to try to find common ground and shared values with people who come in with that belief set? Or do you assume that they are already too far gone and instead focus your efforts on people who um, maybe are open to believing facts, but climate has not become their issue yet? 7% of us are dismissive. And what dis who dismisses are people who are abs absolutely convinced. They don't just think, they know this is a hoax. And they talk about climate change all the time. Just like a sore tooth, they can't leave it alone. They're always bringing up blog posts or books by fake experts like, oh, these people used to work at NASA and they say that, you know, they just made the whole thing up. Those people are dismissive. And the, the label dismissive, I think, is very apt because they will dismiss everything. They will dismiss literally 200 years of science, thousands of scientists, millions of scientific reports. And even, I mean, my personal definition of a dismissive is if an angel from God with brand new tablets of stone appeared before them saying mm -hmm. global warming is real, they would dismiss them. So I honestly believe it takes a miracle to have a positive conversation with a dismissive. I've had thousands of them and I've had maybe two or three that ended up positively and all the rest just, they didn't even, they couldn't even listen. So that's the bad news. But the good news is even though they're very loud and they're amplified in the media, in the comment section of all the newspaper articles or on social media, I hear from a dismissive person on Twitter, like every single day, if not two, two or three times a day. I mean, what time is it? I've already had one today. So wow. <laughs> But they're, they're only 7%, even though they're so loud. So 93% of us, we absolutely can identify something that we have in common. If we don't know what that is, then ask questions and listen to what the other person says. Don't immediately make assumptions about them. I think that that's a, that's a smart, smart mindset for a lot of different um, conversations that need to be have, had in this moment. Because I feel like the pandemic years, which we now have to add the S to it which is really sad because we've now, you know, we're mm -hmm. over a year, we're a year and a half into it. So now we're heading mm -hmm. to two years of this situation. Um, just wild to think about. But the pandemic is not 
disconnected from the issue of climate change. The pandemic is directly linked to the issue of climate change. And there may be more pandemics we're going to have to deal with because of climate change. In the Bible, it talks about <laughs> plagues um, and famine uh, and basically all of the things that we're watching <laughs> that are related to climate change. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some evangelicals that, you know, they'll say like, oh, it's end times or something like that because they've they have read the Bible and they have read those parts. Right. Um, but I don't know necessarily that there are enough that, you know, have really sort of finished the Bible because, you know, that's at the mm. end um, <laughs> at the end of the mm. book. Maybe they didn't get to Revelation yet. I don't know. Um, but do you think that there should be, you know, more encouragement in the evangelical space to, I don't know, read that part of the Bible and then look around because a lot of it is happening. Yeah. And, and the biggest part of what's in the Bible, I think that we don't sort of get a sense of is that we reap what we sow and it's not talking about, um, you know, God punishing us physically for our sins because the Bible says, you know, that the, the, the wages of sin is, is spiritual death. It's not a hurricane or a flood or a pandemic. That's not God's judgment, but it is the, just the natural consequence of the fact that when animals don't have enough habitat, they come in closer and closer contact with humans. And there's more of a likelihood that viruses can jump from animal to human populations because we have eaten away at their habitat. Um, when hurricanes get stronger and wildfires burn more area and heat waves um, send people to the hospital, um, it isn't God's punishment. It's simply, look, we have a planet that has a natural blanket of heat trapping gases that keeps us at just the right temperature for life. I sort of feel the same way about that as you did about the tree snake. When you, when you learn about this, yeah. it's so cool. Yes. Yeah, it's but cool. we are disrupting the natural balance by digging up and burning coal and gas and oil, which is producing even more heat trapping gases, which are wrapping an even bigger blanket around the planet. And that's why it's heating up. It's just physics. The whole universe runs on the same laws of physics. And when you make choices like that, well, guess what? You have to pay the bill. And so that that runs throughout the Bible. And I think we've somehow neglected that in favor of, a, oh, if I just pray hard enough, God will send the rain. And it's like, no, God gave you a brain. And there's my favorite verse in the Bible is actually, it says, God gave you a sound mind. And you can yes. use that sound mind to make good decisions based on what no. the science is telling you. We skip oh, over I... that one too much. Love yes. that. It's, but it, it, you know how just we talk all the time about... Um, it's it's like a parable, right? The guy falls in the hole and he prays to God, oh, yeah. he save me. And then the guy comes with a rope and like a shot, like all the he's help like, no, 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 to, God to will get him me. out of the hole. Yeah, God will help me. No, God's coming. And then he's like, I sent you a man with a rope and a ladder. Like, and so sometimes we don't recognize the miracle. So I, in this moment, <laughs> I know that this segment is about climate and not like the vaccine, but as a scientist, I've and my dad is a scientist and a pastor, so I'm very uniquely positioned in this moment to be like, isn't the miracle the fact that we have a working vaccine? That's isn't that the God part? Like, I feel like that's the miracle. I, I completely um. agree with you. And, and in fact, one of my favorite cartoons is show, showing a Christian arriving at the pearly gates and saying, God, why didn't you save us from climate change? We prayed and prayed. And I think it's, he's actually talking to St. Peter and St. Peter's like, what? Well, I sent you scientists, dumbass. <laughs> and well, you know what? Honestly, so I know I'm a climate scientist, and I know I know that the book starts off talking about climate change, but really, 
it's about all of these polarizing issues that drive us apart. And climate change is the most politically polarized issue, but COVID vaccines and masks are right up there. So I talk about those too. And if we're able to find common ground on some of these most polarized issues, what else might we be able to find common ground on? And how much closer is that actually going to take us to, as the title of the book says, it's not about saving the planet. It's about saving us. Right. Yes. Do you think that uh, listening to you talk about how it's it's not it, like the disaster doesn't happen to you because you have sinned. The disaster happens to you because of the, you know, the, the very precarious nature of life on this planet and the way that we have disrupted it. Do you think that some of this issue where uh, you see the segment of evangelical Christianity just sort of rejecting everything that's taught in the Bible in favor of some very conservative policies that are actually doing the opposite of what you are supposed to be doing as a Christian. Do you see that as like prosperity gospel? Like, is that the problem that we're like, because is it is it that America was founded by, you know, people who believed that wealth was indicative of God's favor on you? And if you didn't have wealth, that probably meant that God didn't favor you. Like, did that streak of Calvinism, like just run all the way through to the 21st century? Or am I missing something else? Well, that's definitely part of it. And I don't want to blame John Calvin because John Calvin himself actually had very good things to say about caring for creation and being good stewards of what God has given us. Um, But absolutely prosperity gospel played into it because it promotes the idea that if you just pray hard enough, you'll get it. And if you don't get it, it's because you didn't pray hard enough. Yep. And that is just not the way the world works. Even if we believe the world was set up by God, which I do, that is not the way God set it up to work. Right. So, so there, there are all kinds of just fascinating books that sort of track the whole evolution of Christianity in America and the whole politicization of Christianity in America, literally going back to the American Revolution, which was when they detached from the formal hierarchy of the church with its sort of measured theology because it was based in England. And so... Um, Mark Knoll, for example, is a historian who wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And he wrote it like 30 years ago. And I think he needs to update it because there's so much more he could add. But you're reading it and you're like, man, you wrote this 30 years ago and you just absolutely understood the situation that we would be in today in 2021. You can see the seeds planted decades Hmm. and even centuries ago, and they are in full flower now. And we're paying for it because you can say, I don't believe in gravity. But if you step off the cliff, you're going down. And if you're a leader, you are taking people with you. And so in the U.S., a lot of conservative political leaders in the media and literally in politics itself, they are using their faith as a cover or a smoke screen for the real problem they don't want to fix climate change, why they don't want to fix climate change. And it has nothing to do with what they actually believe and everything to do with the fact that they literally want to keep us using fossil fuels as long as possible. That's it. Yeah. Everything you just said was so on point. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I'm just like, oh, you're like, yes. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I had a little amen moment. I don't usually get those. (laughs) But, you know, testify. Okay. So the book is Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. Who do you hope reads it? I hope that everyone who's worried about climate change but doesn't know what to do about it reads it. Because it turns out that when you talk to people who are alarmed about climate change, and they're at the opposite end of the spectrum from dismissives, most people who are alarmed are not activated. They don't know what to do. When you talk to people who are in the middle who are cautious, and there are a lot of those where I live in Texas, they're concerned, but they don't know what to do. 
Mm-hmm. So if 93% of us are open to having conversations about this, and if way more than half of us are worried, we're just, we just don't know what to do. And so that's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book to answer the two questions I get most often. What gives you hope? And how do I have a conversation about this? Because you know what? Here's the crazy thing. When you look at how the world has changed before, and the world has changed in huge ways before, huge ways. I mean, you know, 200 years ago, it was acceptable to own other human beings. 150 years ago, it was acceptable to say that women's brains were too fragile to be educated or to vote, that they would overheat if, 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 if we were stimulated in that way. Um, you know, and, and like, you know, 70 years ago, it was acceptable to say that people couldn't, you know, sit in certain places or enter certain buildings, depending on the color of their skin. The world has changed and how it changed was not when presidents or CEOs or celebrities decided it had to. It was when ordinary people of no particular wealth or fame or reputation, they decided the world could and should be different. And not all, but a lot of them were motivated by their faith. And so they used their voices to talk about why it mattered and what we could do to fix it. They met up with other people who said, oh, I feel the same way. They got together and then they started to lobby for changes at the local scale, at the regional scale. Eventually, you know what? at the national scale and at the global scale. So the world can change and every single one of us has a role to play. And that role begins by using our voice. That's why I wrote the book. I would like to join your congregation. Dr. Catherine Hale, <laughs> please. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for joining us this morning. This has been just a spectacular conversation. Yes, it has. Thank you for having me. Thank Everybody you. go out and buy the book, Saving Us. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. 